Amen. 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 We, um, we've gotten into a series. You know, we usually go through book studies. And so we're doing, even though we, we, we do different type of studies here at Epiphany Fellowship, and what we're in is a topical exposition. Say topical exposition. That doesn't mean we're adding. Just because we put topic on it doesn't mean we're trying to add to the text. We're going into the scriptures to take what's out of the scriptures, and God, the Spirit, will put it in us by his power. And so we want to go verse by verse through this, but we're going through a series um, on stewardship. Stewardship. It's a series that I think is very important for us to go through as a church. We're young, church with, with three and a half years old, and there is a great need for stewardship. And when we talk about stewardship, we don't talk about it from the perspective of mere finances alone. That is an aspect of stewardship, but the, the central principle of stewardship is that there is an owner who is God himself, and he has subjects in which he has given them multiple spheres to execute glorifying him in. And so to the first week we got into God the owner out of, the, out of Psalm uh, 24. We went, we went through him as the owner, proclaiming that he is king and ruler over everything. And so we, we, we talked a lot about pointing to the fact that we should relate to nothing in our sphere as owners but stewards. And then we talked about the next week, we, we went into one of the sectionals on this is our gifts, our talents, our abilities, and Jesus' beamer. And we're in the second week of that as we're going through Matthew 25, a parable, parable in the Olivet Discourse, a section of scripture in which Jesus is teaching his disciples about um, uh, expectations in time that will have eschatological uh, pointings. And when we say eschatological, we just mean last things. How God is going to consummate everything in Jesus. And so Jesus is loading his, his disciples with the nutrients that, it, that they need in order to be properly prepared for his return. Boom and stuff. And so last week we got into the parable of the talents. And we talked about the fact that in the context of Matthew, Matthew is concerned about Jesus being seen as a messianic king. And in light of that messianic kingship, Jesus um, is portrayed by Matthew as talking to his disciples and describing or uh, uh, defining the kingdom. Now, what's interesting about Jesus is Jesus doesn't, he never gives a, a linear definition of the kingdom. Never. He always gives descriptives through similes and metaphors to describe what the kingdom is like and giving us a responsibility for it. Most of the time when Christians read passages that point to eschatology, they tend to point to bold judgments and helicopters and planes looking like animals and, you know, all that type of stuff. But really, this understanding of eschatology is a bad one because it always points to stuff that's going to happen versus a person. That's why Revelation 1-3 says, the revelation of Jesus. If you come away from Revelation with anything but Jesus as our eschatology, then you got a bad eschatology. <laughs> he's the center of our eschatology family. And, and he's going to have an explicit return, which we're going to talk about today as we go into the rest of what we were talking about. We left off last time. We were in verse 14. And we were talking about the fact that says this, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, one, 
to each according to his ability. So we saw last time as we talked about that, as we talked about Jesus is telling this parable um, really from the standpoint of talking to his disciples about what does it look like to, to, to utilize everything that I put in your sphere until I come back. Now, many people, you can't come to this parable looking at it soteriologically. That's not the main point. Soteriologically just means looking at it from the standpoint of getting saved or salvation. But that's not the point of why Jesus is writing this, uh, uh, Matthew wrote this parable um, that Jesus gave them. Verses, if you want a, a parable on salvation, look at verses 1 through verses 12. That the parable of the ten virgins is about salvation. This one is about how you utilize the salvation that you got. Now, there will be, in the end of it, some, some warning infl- implications for those who are saved, but it's not used in a soteriological format. And so we look here, and Jesus says, it's like an owner going away on a long journey. He called his servants to himself and gave them responsibilities based on their abilities. So he gave one five talents, one, two, one, one, and he dipped after that. And we saw last time that talents, one talent is worth t- uh, 30,000 denarii, which is a lifetime's worth of wages. We talked about how that means the guy that had five had five lifetimes worth of wages. That's 30 years wage times five. Then you got the same with the, 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 the second one who was given two talents, two lifetimes of wage. And then you got one that got one talent that's given one life, uh, uh, lifetime of wages. And it says, according to his own ability. And so we saw that Jesus is pointing to his ascension after he dies on the cross, buried, raised from the dead, spends 40 days hanging out, kicking it and appearing and walking through walls for a little while, chopping it up with his believers, showing them that he's alive by eating fish and drinking stuff. And then he gets on a cloud and surfs into heaven. Okay? And, 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 so, and, so, and so we talked about that. So he's, he, he, was, he was very vehement about letting his disciples know what it was going to be like when he dipped, but also what they're responsible for. So he says, but he gave to them according to his own ability, which points to Jesus, giving to us according to our own ability. We said that talents were not just money, euphemistically, it's figurative language talking about everything that God makes people responsible for. Everything. That's what the talents represent. Everything that he makes us responsible for in our life. And the only thing that we were able to get to last time was time. And I think that was enough um, because I saw blood all over this place and I was bleeding too. Um, And and how many of y'all did y'all sign me, by the way? Wow. We need need to cross right now. We we need to cross right now. So we're going to forgive because there's a cross. But, but, But you were supposed to. Go through and lay out what your week is normally like and put it in time blocks. Because what we're going to do during this series and during this time is based on God's implications and his responsibility uh, that he's given to us based on our abilities. We want to spend our time filled with those things so that our time is pointed, focused, and not aimless. (laughs) That's very, very important. Our time should not be aimless on planet Earth. So we got there and we talked about time. And so what I'm going to do differently this, this gathering is I'm going to go through the story first. And then we're going to come back and interpret it and give application of it. Is that cool? So he goes in verse 16 and he says, he says, he who had received the five talents went at once. I like that. He went immediately and traded with them and he made 
five more talents, so also he who had the two talents made two more talents. So both of these guys doubled what was brought in based on what the master had given them. They doubled it. It was normal to be able to utilize these type of investment opportunities during this period of time in the first century age. Then he goes further down and he talks about, he says, but, now look at that contrasting, contrasting conjunction. It says, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So it was normal during that period of time to go and hide money in the ground. Even today they find excavations when they dig up ground and find where people had hid money or hid resources in the ground. And I told y'all last week, that was like grandmama um, getting her uh, stocking and putting money in the stocking, tying it up in the knot and putting it between the bed sheets because she didn't trust the, the government or the bank system. Kind of like the same thing. And so it says, now after a long time, so you see, after a long time, the master had given these things to them. Recover, recover. I see y'all still recovering. And so it says now after a long time. So it wasn't like in that day heads could really like, like had an R7 schedule. Like it's not like you can catch the R. Well, I'm going to get to it this time. And it wasn't like that. So there was a lapse of time. There was an unclear, undefined amount of time that the master would have went away. And then he would have expectations in relation to what was done with his resources in between the time he gave them the resources and dipped and came back. So there was an expectation of that. So it was a long period of time, and we'll talk about the tension of that when we get into the interpretive and applicational portion of this. It says, the master of those servants came and settled accounts. This is an interesting term. Settling accounts was really a banking term to talk about taking inventory. It, 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 it has the idea of basically going in and looking at the resources that you have in your possession and counting where they are, how they've been used, and how they have been used. I used to work at a movie theater in the 80s, and, um, and, um, and a movie theater ain't nothing like it is now. It's interesting. But, um, but, but, but I worked in one, and we used to have to do inventory every week. I mean, I mean if, if you didn't do inventory, it would mess up the finance system and so you can, get, you can have as much popcorn as you want, you can have as much soda as you want, but you can't use the containers because they use the containers as ways to count the inventory of how much was sold and how much was kept. And so the same way we would have to count everything, we had to count raisinets, goobers, uh, uh, gummy bears, we had to count everything. You know what I'm saying? And we'd have to count the containers, all of them. Only way we would have to count them is if it was closed at the top. So we have to go through each one and put our fingers on and count each one and give a record so that they can know how much was sold that day so they can know how much finances were. Well, this master returned, and when this master returned, he wanted to get an inventory of his possessions. So he called the cats up. He said, all right, family, let's come on up and let's talk about things. So he goes and they, they, they begin getting it in, verse 20. And he said, and he who had received five talents came forward Bringing, uh, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your master. Verse 20. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have uh, made two more talents. 
His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your master. So you see that the master got a return doubly on his investment. And so he says, you were faithful over a few things, and now I'm going to give you more responsibility. And what was interesting in this context and in this, and in this time period is, is owners who had slaves, which the word here is doulas, um, who were bought with the price, they would have never spoke to a slave in this way and commending them for using their possessions. Remember last week we saw that in that age, a slave would not be given any type of financial responsibility on this level like this. So we're seeing how Jesus is using this, and we'll, of course, see that in our interpretive portion. Then he goes and he tells them to come on into the joy of your master. So I'm going to let you more fully experience what I've been experiencing myself. We'll talk about that. He says in verse 24, he says, he says, he who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, how you doing, Master? I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Now, viably, this would have been a viable way of using possessions back then, but not based on the expectations of this master. Because the expectations of this master is not that anything that he would give would be buried, but he wanted to make sure that every resource that he had and that he owns, that when he gives them to his servants, that he gets a return on it. So hiding it was an okay mechanism in general, but not in relation to what this master was passionate about happening with what he gave to his servants. And so he responds to him. It says, but, always watch when there's a but in the text. It says, but his master answered, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reaped where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming, underline that, I should have received what was my own with interest. So he expected a return on it. And it says, so take the talent from him and give it to the one, to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so, of course, Jesus lays this out to give them a pictorial of something. Now, Jesus' philosophy of parables is beautiful because in his philosophy of giving parables, Matthew 13, 23 says, the, the disciples say, Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables, to everybody else in parables? And so he says, well, to you, to them, I speak in parables. In other words, vaguely. But to you, it has been given the ability to understand the mysteries of the kingdom. And so what happens is when you are a disciple and Jesus gives parables to you, and he's giving you a parable so that you can understand and execute his kingdom principles. And so what is Jesus saying here in relation to this parable, in relation to what should we do? What does this have to do with stewardship? What does this have to do with what we should be doing now? What should this have to do with our spheres? And what in the world does this have to do with the future? Everything. Everything. And so Jesus 
in relating the talents, the talents meant several things. A talent. Remember, we pointed last week that it meant first time. And we talked about how in time we went over to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 and 16, where it talked about redeeming the times. Say redeem the times. And we saw last week that um, the idea of redeeming the times means buy back time. In other words, in other words, you must take time as it exists because you are under the cross and you have come from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his marvelous son. The way you use time is different than you used to use it. So that means the word there literally means to molest time, to take advantage of time. In other words, laugh at time rather than feel frustrated by time. See, most of us are frustrated by time. We don't look at time like, I, I'm going to make the most of this. We always feel like sayings like there are not enough hours in the day. But in the mind of God for his people thinking redemptively about time, you're saying to yourself it's just enough time in the day when you're taking care of business in relation to the way Christ wants us to do it. But then it points to time. It also points to abilities. And ability here in this ide ideal means that God measures off to each Christian um, an amount of responsibility that he's going to give them. Every Christian has responsibility levels based on what he's placed in your sphere. Every, every, everyone. Now, in relation to what he's placed in our sphere, he also gives ability to match what he has given us responsibility for. So that means that you and I, listen, should be able to utilize everything that God has put in our possession to his glory because God never gives anyone responsibility for something without preparing them for what he wants them to do with it. Never. Never. So God's not like holding behind my back, find it. Um, no, nah, he, he's already rigged you like that, right? But what's dope about God also is he's put a cap on each one of us based on our ability to maximize in that particular sphere. So we see first it was time, we saw ability, but then, but then another thing that we see is also comprehensive material resources also. This points to also our material resources, how we use the material that God has put in our possession. And I'm not going to give it all away today, but we're going to do a message next time on a biblical theology of success, possessions, and prosperity. You know why? Because I think we're not a, we're not, we don't believe in the prosperity gospel here. We don't. However... One of the things that I, I, I do have a problem with is Christians who go the other direction and idolize poverty. Because that's that, like, like wanting to be impoverished in, in a passion is idolatry. That's idolatry. If you idolize having possessions or not having possessions, that's idolatry. However, based on God's, God has already sovereignly decided how much money you can make. I'm going to talk about that in a few weeks. You scared, ain't you? You said, dag. He was like, dag, man, I thought I was going to be, had that Jay-Z loop, man. I thought I was going to have that, you know what I'm saying, had me a black, black diamond Jesus around my neck, drop top Bentley, you know what I'm saying, walking bull-legged into the, you know what I'm saying. What, you know what I'm saying? I was going to cool with mine and sag a little bit, you know what I mean? Had loop, you know, slide a little. And if you make me rich, God, I share it. I give to the church for you. You know how we do. So, um. But God has sovereignly, like butter, he's buttered off to Christians. Some of y'all are pound cake abilities. Some of y'all. Some of y'all got a, a pack of butter abilities. A pack of butter, you know what I'm saying? 
Then you, some of y'all got a little, little slicey bitty, looks like cacao, little unsalted butter piece. You know what I'm saying? And so, but, but listen, but none of us in our ability level is better than the other one because God is going to equally respond to, he wants us to make sure that whatever level you have, did you, did you melt the butter and put it in the mix? What you do with the butter? Huh? Yeah. And so he's put all of these things in our possession as Christians to maximize. That's why our motto at Epiphany Fellowship is to show off the glory of Christ. Where? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wants every area to be to the full when he returns. So we should spend ourselves in living for him and properly resting, which we'll talk about in a few weeks, to be refueled for the mission that he's called us to. That's what Sabbath is for. <laughs> and so material possessions, our stewardship of the gospel, because now we have, now, now, now this is interesting about the New Testament, because you have, you have varying abilities that each person has been given and varying amounts of things that those abilities are matched to steward. However, every Christian will have an equal level of responsibility uh, um, in certain things in relation to everything that he's given to every believer to utilize. One of those is our stewardship of the gospel. Our stewardship of, of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 4.1 points to that. 1 Corinthians 9.17 points to that. Romans 16.23. I pray, he says, that our God may, may establish you according to the preaching of my gospel. So the gospel doesn't justify only. We believe that it also sanctifies, grows you. You don't start off with Jesus and then live the Christian life without him. You don't pull yourself up by works. That's why, pe that's why people can believe they can lose their salvation. Because if you're sanctifying yourself, then you probably weren't saved in the first place. Whole nother convo. But then believers are generally responsible for the one another's. We're going to be judged on how we execute the one another's. Like in Romans 12, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 through the end of the chapter. The one another's, they're all over the New Testament. Another one is a scary area that we're going to be judged for. We're going to be judged on how we persevere. Woo! In the Beatitudes, in chapter 5 of, of Matthew, verse, of 5, verse 12, it says something beautiful. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake, because their reward in heaven is great. It's not for whether or not you're going to heaven. It's based on the reward level when you get to heaven. What is perseverance? Somebody asked. I'm glad you asked. Perseverance is consistency in the midst of adversity. So as soon as a trial comes your way, God is keeping notes and how much you trust him to bring you through the trial. Listen, listen, listen. If you're not persevering, in other words, if you begin sinning because hell has broken loose, that's a loss. Because that's not his goal when we go through. His goal that we go through is that Jesus may be more effectively seen because we're going through. That, that, that's the, so everybody, like, like, I don't care how much you know. You know all you want. No, all, you can memorize the New Testament. Matthew 1, 1. 
Revelation 22. You can go all the way all you want to. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created heaven. You can do all that. But if when something happens, ah, you're acting a fool. Now, knowledge of Scripture is supposed to impact how you deal with hardship. <laughs> so, so, so persevere. But, but the issue, the key word is consistency. See, it's easy to be consistent when everything's okay. But see, God says, I start crunching numbers when things aren't okay. <laughs> and so every Christian fam is going to have, everybody has the ability, whether you don't have loot, whether you maxing out loot. It doesn't matter where you live, what zip code you in, nobody is immune from suffering. And because God has set it up that way, he's always keeping notes on it. Now, we're not talking about moralism, though. I don't want you to begin feeling like you got to do it on your own. Because, again, it has to do with Christ. Another one. I go on all day on these. Generosity to the needy. Wow. Help us, God. Luke chapter 14, verses 13 through 14, points to this reality of Jesus talking about where our rewards will come from in relation to how we were able to give. Now, many people will say, well... I don't have it to give. Well, most of us don't steward in a way. Most of us think of our finances in relation to personal benefit. I, what, I, let's see, I can, I can upgrade. I can, yeah, then I can. Man, then after that, mm, then man, that, mm, that type of good. Then I can upgrade. Then I can have the flats, the fat, the jump, the 70. And yeah, when that come out, I'm going to be saving for that. Then I can upgrade my cable, have all the channels unleashed. You know what I'm saying? Then I don't have to have just the antenna. Man, then after that, man, I can put the tents on the car. Man, get the low profiles in the joint. Man, you know, get the bowl system. Boom. Then, then I ain't got to go to the thrift store no more. Boom. Then I ain't go, you know, because usually when I go to Banana Republic, you know, usually I go straight to the sale rack. But I be so fly, you know what I'm saying? I'm going to go. Some of y'all know what it's like. You go straight to the sale rack. You're going to say to the sale, right? You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. But, but you be looking past the other stuff like, dang. <laughs> Doggone it. <laughs> I'm going to wait till it go on sale. Give, I'm going to give you my number so that when this go on sale, you call me. <laughs> Some of y'all know I'm telling the truth. And so, and so, and so, and so in relation to that, we need to, Jesus wants us to rig our finances for glory, not for self. Okay? Another one, I can stay on this. This is the hard one. Relationships with your enemies. Well, Lord. Luke 6, 35. This, this, like, this is grimy Christianity right here. Like, see, this when you really trying to walk with, see, if you ain't, listen to this, look at this. Luke 3. 635, he says, but love your enemies and do good and lend. Wow. Expecting nothing in return. Leave a voice message. Yeah, man, kind of hit hard times. Need that loop back. Jesus say, when you go, you know how we do. He said, expect nothing in return and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. That's cross-centered stuff. That's center of the cross stuff. See, we have a you owe me mentality. Now, let's define enemies. A Christian can't call another Christian an enemy. 
Because, let me tell you why. All of us were enemies of God at one time. All of us. So now, if, if Christ saves us, we were all enmity with one another and with God. But if we're in the cross and in Christ, Christians can't be our enemy. Now, I know we practically make Christians our enemies, but, but theologically, Christians can't be your enemies. So if you treat a Christian right, that you don't get a reward for that. You only get a reward for somebody who is grimy, dusty, away from the kingdom, and you do something for them that they don't deserve. At the time when you're at your angriest. God will judge that. You ever, I don't know if you've ever been angry till you had, like, like you had veins that split in three directions right here. And, and, and at that point is when God wants to know what are you going to do. At the, when you're the angriest. That's why he says be angry, but yeah. So he wants to make sure that biblically God wants us to, like, it's, like being a Christian it's, if you're trying to really walk with Jesus and be empowered by Jesus to live the Christian life, it's some old crack and crevices stuff we got to get out of the way. <laughs> Again, I, I, we can stay on that all day. Final point, and then I'm, I'm going to be out your way. Now we're going to talk more about the Bema seat. Y'all want to hear about that? Yeah. Now, now, the rest of the parable talks about, in the parable, when the, when the master comes. So we see that in this parable... Jesus is talking about his second advent. His second advent is when he comes in his power and glory, when he surfs back on the same cloud on a horse, back to planet Earth, angels flanking him, and those who are in him flanking him real smooth like. We stand in there, and he, got on his, he gets off and dismounts his horse, stands on the Mount of Olives based on uh, Ze uh, Zechariah 4.14, I mean Zechariah 4, Zephaniah 4, and, 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 the, and it splits from east to west, books of life open, judgment takes place. Now, for the unbeliever, um, um, the, the, a person that doesn't know Jesus Christ, you're going to experience what's called the great white throne judgment. You don't want to be at that one. <laughs> that, that's Revelation 20. You don't want to be at that joint. Because you're not being judged with whether or not how you did stuff to be with him in relation to being with him or because you're with him, not to be, but because you're with him, you're being judged for how hellacious hell is going to be. Good gracious alive. Help me, somebody. Every time I think, oh, my God, hell, help me. All right. But then there's the beam of seat. Say beam of seat. Yes, yeah, so Jesus is now laying out in this parable, the return, when he says, now after a long time, the master returned. I, 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 like, I like this idea because Jesus expects time to lapse, and in that lapsing of time period, he wants us to be maximizing those possessions. Now, what's beautiful, what, what's, what's interesting is that you hear in the New Testament, like you hear in Revelation 22.7, I am coming quickly, on one hand, but then you'll hear Jesus acting like it's going to be a mad long. And basically, he's using... Kind of a double entendre of sorts to keep us on our toes on one end, but making sure we um, don't have a lack of quality in relation to him saying it's a long time. So when he says a long time, that means you, God is going to give us ample amount of time to maximize those resources that he's put in our sphere, utilizing them in the way that he wants us. There's going to be ample amount of time. However, he's coming quickly, so he don't want you to start sipping on lemonade regularly with your hand back with an umbrella in it, you know what I'm saying? And your life looks like a perpetual vacation. So what he does is he, is he tries to play the tension on us 
so that we can feel the griminess of the return so that we don't, you know, whenever I can tell my son did something, I understand. I don't even be thinking about the man doing something. I come in the room, hi, daddy. Hi. I love you, dad. You're the best dad in the world. I say, son, what you do? Nothing, nothing. Let's go into that room, daddy. You know what I'm saying? In other words, he was doing something, not expecting me to come there. See, the believer, we're supposed to live a life of integrity through Christ, where if Jesus returned, there wouldn't be momentarily momentary embarrassment. And so, and so, again, it's empowered by Christ through his work. And so, and so there's a tension there. But there's one thing that has to happen in order for him to return. Matthew 24, 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations. And then the end will come. Then the end will come. So the gospel has to hit every every sector of the globe and every people group of every time, and they will be, and they will be represented in heaven. And so when he comes back to settle accounts, this is, this is interesting. Turn over, this idea of settling accounts right here in verse 19 points to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, let's turn over there. 1 Corinthians 3. We'll start in 1 Corinthians 3. Now, this is scary, fam. But, it's, but, but it doesn't have to be. In verses 12 through 15, it says, Now, if anyone builds a, 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 on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that was done, uh, th that anyone has built on, the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but as through fire. Dope. So he's pointing to the fact that when Jesus Christ comes before the Bema seat, the Bema seat, of course, is also in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Verse 10, where it says, we all, that is Christians, must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So this is where those who are redeemed come. Now, what's going to happen is, 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 is Jesus is going to um, be standing there, and he's going to say, okay, first, Darius, come forward. Darius is going to come forward. He's going to say, all right, bring up all his works through his life, crack coking, all the way down, right? Then he's going to say, all right, turn the furnace on, and everything's going to be set on fire. Now, if it survives like the burning bush or the three Hebrew boys, then that means Jesus was cool with it. That means that it was done by his power, and he is pleased with that work. However, if it melts like wax, that means that the Bible says we will suffer loss. That means for that particular thing, there will not be a reward for it. Okay, and so when we stand before the beamer, we are going to be judged based on those things, on, on these things that whether our works, any work that he has put in our sphere and how I treated my wife. Even when I said something nice to her, it's going to put, be put on record. 
All right, play that. Okay, now, he's going to say, peel back. I, that sound good. He'll say, now, 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 I want you, because every track in heaven is laced with the ability to go beyond what is said on the track. Because God, every man's heart is open to God. So he peels back the track and say, okay, I want you to play the hidden track and the open track at the same time. Now, the question is, did what he say match what his heart said? If the two are different, wax. Now, this ain't about whether you're going to heaven or not. It ain't even about that right now. You know what I'm saying? Save. You save, but we're talking about, we're talking about in, in relation to the motivation that God gives. By now, now, what's interesting in this passage that I'm always blown away by is the master's response when he does affirm them. I, I, I love this. because I, I, he, said, he, said, he said, well done to these guys, good and faithful servant. Now, now, owners of slaves would never tell a slave that. So we see that Jesus is culturally relevant because he uses the parable, their language, but he's countercultural because he goes against how culture views slavery. And so a slave to him is a servant in a different facet and format. And so what's beautiful about this is he gives commendation, and then he says, you are faithful over a little. And I, 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 that, Now, most of the time we hear that, Good, well, we want to hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. You were faithful over little, a few things. Let me make you rulers over many. But you got to understand what he's saying little was. If we go back to the understanding of the meaning of the talent, he says a lifetime of wage is a little bit of money. He says two talents, two lifetimes of wages is just a little something, something. He says five lifetimes of wage, that was just a little. See, so you don't understand because that's pointing to how rich the owner is. In, in other words, the owner's like, you thought that was something? Like that was just a little something in relation to the measure of how much I actually have. A little something, something. But now I'm about to make you rulers over mad stuff that you, he, I mean, I'm, you got to understand for me. Like, do you know how rich Christ is? In riches, made himself poor. This is the same one that incarnated, made himself hyperbolically poor for us so that we can look at him and say, I ain't even come trying to get no shine physically. I want an all spiritual shine, but I'm really rich than a mug. So God, so, so this crisis, you were faithful over just a few things, fam. Be rulers over a whole lot of stuff. And this is the part would make me want to run and bust a hole like Tom and Jerry in the wall right there. It says, enter the joy of your master. If I could just stay there about five minutes. Enter the joy. Now you got to understand, Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer that we would enjoy the glory that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit was having for eternity. So most people, when they share the gospel, they talk about how to get to heaven. That's the wrong answer question. It's how to get in a relationship with God for eternity. Because listen, I don't know what it's going to be like, but we get to hang out forever with God the Father, God the Son, 
and God the Spirit. Now, I don't know what this Holy Spirit is going to be doing. Like, is he going to surround us? And God is non-corporeal. He doesn't have a body. So his glory will be unveiled. His majesty will be unveiled. His mercy will be unveiled. His sovereignty will be unveiled. His rule, everything unveiled. And you just get to stand in it. And you have a body that's built to withstand his presence. And it won't destroy you. And it's going all through you and coming. I mean, good God. Am I, listen, I can't wait to enjoy God forever. See, 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 and, and, and see the Christian, it's not saying steward so you can spend time with God. You, you steward well because you are going to. You don't steward well, you're not trying to spend time with God if you're a Christian. You're not trying to spend eternity with God. You are just saying, in light of me spending time with him, I got to get it up. Because I'm going to be in his presence forever. Jesus, once, if Jesus touched me once, I'm going to do a Michael Jackson faint. I'm going to just... The glorious Lord is going to be around. He said, this is what I was praying about. His prayer is going to come to pass. And we will get to experience eternity with him forever. So if you're going to spend eternity with somebody like that, why in the world wouldn't you steward everything right? You should be motivated by his, by his joy. He says, enter the joy of your master, the joy that I've been having. He says in John 15, make my joy complete. And joy is not situational, so it's beautiful that he tells them to enter the joy of your master. And so here they'll get to spend beautiful time with their master in everything that he was experiencing within the riches. But with all of the, the jasper and the topaz and the diamonds, black, yellow, blue, and green, and emeralds, and sapphires, and, and all different types of metal around, those won't be treasures to us anymore. See, you see bling bling right now, you get real excited. But the Bible says that God is going to shine in Christ greater than the sun. So even the jewels that are around, we won't pay attention to because something more worthwhile will be in our presence. <laughs> and so for the Christian, this should be the motivation for us to steward everything in our sphere properly because we want God to get maximum glory in Christ. And the thing that God the Father is most satisfied is with Jesus Christ getting glory. He says, that's why he says in Psalm 1, he says, my God said, my Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool to my feet. It is God's passion that Jesus rules everything, both in time and eternity. And so this should be our passion. But then we go to this other dude. And this other dude, he has one talent. And so he's already looking at the fact, dang, the dude, five talents. He got, he got double. He doubled his. Good and faithful servant into the joy of your master. Then number two, same thing. So he over there trying to figure out, he's going, he's pacing. Like, uh, what am I going to say to the master? What am I going to say to the master? Get it together. Get it together. He's trying to figure that thing out. And then he said, hey, master, what's up, master? How you doing? Much love. Um, well, let me give a report. See, I knew. See, I know how you are. You know what I'm saying? I know you real well. Master, you a hard man. Reaping where you did not sow and gathering uh, where, uh, gathering where uh, you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. You know, you're a beast. You, I'm afraid of you. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. So he bring it back to him all dirty with dirt and worms on it and carrying on. Unused but buried. 
He tries to dust it off, blow it off, and give it to the master. The master looks at him, and he says, and the text says, but again, and it says, his master said to him, you wicked and slothful servant. Wow. Wow. So what is he saying to him? What does it mean here to be wicked? Glad you asked. Useless, unprofitable, unserviceable, being of morally and socially worthless, evil, bad, base, worthless, vicious, and degenerate. Slothful, possessing a state of shrinking back or holding back, having deep hesitation, idle, lazy, and indolent. So basically he calls him the worst thing that he could call this servant. And so when he talks to this servant after he brings it, he said, you could have invested my money. He said, you could have invested it because even investment was a viable tool of increase back then, right? Um, however, he didn't do that. He didn't do anything with it. He sat on it and hung out and chilled and then represented him with what was his without any return or responsibility in mind in relation to it. And so he says in verse 28, he says, so take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. In other words, I want to give it to somebody that can be more user-friendly with it, that can utilize it and get resources back from me. He says, for to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And so he's talking about the rewards of those who properly steward what has been placed in their sphere. That's Jesus' ideal of it. And what's interesting about rewards is, is very few scholars that really, and even from a biblical standpoint, whether you're a scholar or not, um, the Bible doesn't give clear designation to what the reward will exactly look like. It talks about crowns and it talks about thrones and it talks about levels of rule being over different things. But it doesn't give a clear uh, layout um, of what um, a reward is going to look like. However, there is going to be a particular reward given to God's people. But what's interesting here is, 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 is it presents us with what we call an exegetical Really not an exegetical problem. It presents us with a theological problem for those of us who believe in eternal security. Because right here it sounds like he's a servant, isn't he? I know, he's a servant. Um, he's been given resources and ability. But look at what it says about him. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now is that, you know, a bad neighborhood? Like, just live a long time in a bad neighborhood? Is that a third world country? Well, what, 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 what is that? Well, in, in the, in one of the things that we, when you look at passages, you always want to understand the context of its usage. Now, a parable, of course, is a figurative story, either true or created, to explain a singular and particular theological idea. That's very important. So one of the things you don't want to come to it is you don't come to it with your systematic theology in a way that takes away from the original author's intent for the original audience. So here, the question is, how in the world does a person be presented as a slave? What, how is Jesus utilizing that terminology? Well, it's a bunch of ways he uses it. You'll look in Ephesians 5, you'll look in uh, several passages, like Ephesians 5, and it begins laying out a clear treatise of what um, the identity of a person that's not in a relationship with God is like. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
1 Corinthians chapter 6 is a great example of this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting off at verse 9, it says, Do you not know that the, right, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, um, some translators may say uh, effeminate, uh, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit, will inherit the kingdom of God. And so he says, do you not know that these people won't go to heaven? Won't spend eternity with God. Now the problem with this is the Corinthians, when you look at the book, they're doing all of this right now. Right now, they're doing that. They were, they were practicing this right here. But what's interesting is Paul, what he says after that. He says, and such were some of you. Hold on. They're doing it right now, but he's saying such were some of you as if they're not doing it. So what he's using this to talk about is identity issue. So what he's pointing to here is that you're functioning like you are not in Christ and not functionally practicing your identity in him. You're acting like you're not even saved. That's not who you are anymore. So because that's not you anymore, why are you acting like that? So when Jesus back, oh, and you'll see it in, in Hebrews chapter 2, I believe, chapter 5 and chapter 6, those are warning passages where it's warning Christians who are authentically Christian saying, like, this is what happens to people who don't know him, so you shouldn't be, you should have had this M.O. Back over to Matthew chapter 25, last verse, he says, people who act like I don't own anything go to hell. He says, so don't act like those who are going to hell, who are going to spend eternity away from me. Because you have been bought with a price, don't operate in that sphere because people who don't steward things well, even if they maximize usage, if that usage wasn't maximized for me, it's just as the person who didn't use anything that I gave them in the first place. Because only what you do for Christ will what? Yes. So it's very, very important for us as Christians. This should be a motivation. Should be a motivation is that he's using the identity of the Christian as a means to help in, based on Christ, though. Because remember, Colossians 1.29 says that Paul says, I, I serve or spend myself based on the energy that Christ provides. So when we do these things, we're not doing moralism, like feeling bad and then going, trying to please God to get in good Good, uh, get in good standing with him. I, I don't want you to approach the stewardship series like that. Approaching it in order to get, so I got to do this to get. No, you do this because you're already in good standing with God through Christ. And so Christ died on the cross. And his work was sufficient for all of our work. All of it. So that means our work that's in his sphere based on his abilities, based on the talents that he's given us and abilities that he's given us, we should be spending ourselves on these things. And so in the upcoming weeks, we're going to talk a lot about this idea. But if you're not in Christ today, you're like, like, like your energy doesn't count. It doesn't. Because the Bible says in Isaiah that on your best day, when you, when you kind of do like this and pop your collar and shrug your shoulders, on your best day, when you think you're killing it in your righteousness, it's as filthy rags. Wow. Why? Because to think that you can do good works for God without God is pride. 
Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means it, it, no one does right. No one, somebody said, well, I'm seeking him. No, you're not, because no one seeks after God. God isn't lost. He finds. <laughs> and if you're seeking for him, the only reason you are is because Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws them. <laughs> and so in light of that reality, if you're here today, you got to recognize all of us, all of us, even Christians, we admit we're sinners, we jacked up, we're not trying to act like we're better than anybody else. The reason why we know we're not better than anybody else is because we went to the cross. Like the cross is our reasoning behind, like we're not better than anyone else. That's why we need the cross. So because of that, we, we warn people of the wrath that's to come. There is wrath coming because every, every person has a contract in heaven out on their life. Everybody. There's a written contract signed by God that he's going to kill everybody. Righteously. But what's beautiful is he sent Jesus to live the life we could never live and die the death we could never die, be raised from the grave, not be guilty, yet be found guilty. He wasn't guilty, but he took on our guilt. And for those who trust him, he injects you with his righteousness. Therefore, the works that you do are his works, not yours. That's why we say we are crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live to the glory of the Son of God who was delivered up for me. We are the glove. He is the hand. He lives the Christian life through us and for us and in us. But if you're not in Christ, you're because all of us are dead in our trespasses and alienated from the life of God. So that means that if you're trying to live any kind of way without Christ, even if you think it's a moral life, morality isn't good enough because God is holy and he's without, without any moral impurity in his character or any of his perfections. And that's what he demands of us. And so today, maybe it's you that need to put faith in Christ alone. That means you got to repent. That means you got to turn away from the fact that you believe that your life is okay. <laughs> you got you to turn, well, many Christians, no, nah, don't you, we're talking about you, not Christians. The cross is dealing with us. Now it's time for the cross to deal with you. If you let it and turn and repent, turn towards him in faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone. And God's wrath, the day of the Lord motif that the prophets talk about. The day of the Lord motif is when he will give mercy to the righteous and he's going to bring the smack down on the wicked. And even those who think they're good, in his eyes without Christ, are gutter wicked. Even if you never murdered anybody. And so, and so today, it's an opportunity. You believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins. You repent. Believe by faith. That means you don't add any, not Christ and I like this, and Christ and I did. Christ and Christ alone. Because he's the only one worthy and sufficient to do it. If that's you today, there's a card on the back table. We want to chop with you right afterwards. We want to get it in with you. Our connections team want to connect with you and talk to you about what, it, what, it, what does it mean to internalize this, and we want to explain it to you and walk you from what it looks like to go from spiritual death to spiritual life. And then your works will be satisfactory because they're not your works but his works. Father, we honor you.